Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. The centre of Constantinople had been left gutted. Among the many treasures destroyed in the inferno had been the Senate House and all the antique statues with which Constantine had long previously adorned the bathhouse. Their loss had obliterated precious links with what was by now a very distant past. Yet in truth, Justinian was pleased to see them gone. The Senate House had always loomed too large over the Augusteon for his tastes. Its replacement, so he decreed, was to be built on a much smaller scale. The monuments that Justinian aimed to found upon the rubble of the old would be raised to the glory, not of the traditional gods of the Roman people, but of something very different, a single omnipotent god. Tom, who who wrote that deathless prose? Uh, it was a top historian. Was uh, it yourself? It was. Yes, it was. Um, so that's in the shadow of the sword. Um, and uh, that is just a summary of where we were at the end of last episode. Yeah. We're back with Justin and Theodore, aren't we? The we third are. episode of what was going to be one episode. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, so for those people who haven't listened to the previous two, obviously you do need to listen. Well, you don't need to, but you, you, you could and you should listen to the previous two. We're in the 6th century. We're in Constantinople, the new Rome, the capital of the... Well, you call it the Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. Um, this incredibly glamorous couple are Emperor and Empress, Justinian and Theodora. They have just seen off the Blues and the Greens, the circus factions who were rioting at the beginning of 532. They, uh, Justinian has is rebuilding Hagia Sophia, the great church of the Holy Wisdom, the great cathedral that still is one of the world's great sort of tourist sites in the in center of Istanbul. And Tom, Justinian, I mean, the, the paradox of Justinian, as you say, is that he seems to, to us to mark a break with ancient Rome because conventionally, I suppose, in kind of popular history books, in textbooks and encyclopedias and things, the 6th century is roughly the point at which people stop talking of this as the Roman Empire and they start talking of it as the Byzantine Empire. But Justinian has this project, doesn't he, to, re- to rebuild not just the city, but to rebuild the Roman world by reuniting um, Constantinople with Italy and with North Africa and perhaps ultimately with Spain, who knows, with Gaul, with, with, yeah. with Britain even, with the provinces that have been lost. Yeah. And I, I think this is, we talked about that we ended our, our, our last episode on this note that Justinian is an incredibly paradoxical figure because on, on the one hand, um, you know, he, he, he seems almost a bit of an anachronism. He is a kind of Caesar of the order of, um, you know, of Trajan. He's a great conqueror. Um, he's the embodiment of these kind of ancient Roman martial imperial traditions. But at the same time, his attempts to kind of restore this Roman empire actually precipitates its decline. Yeah. Well, that's the big, that's the big argument, isn't it? About whether that's the case. But actually, when it starts, so he starts with North Africa, doesn't he? That's his, the first target. And it's a relatively, it's been run by these, I mean, it's been taken over by these people called the Vandals for about a hundred years. And actually, that, that campaign goes pretty well. The Vandals, interestingly, we've, we haven't talked as much as some people might expect about christological disputes in these <laughs> novels. but the vandals are yet another brand of heretics because they are Aryans, aren't they so they believe now tom i know you'll think this is a grotesque simplification but am i right in thinking the vandals believe that jesus is subordinate to God? basically yes he's not he's not co-eternal with he's God not quite as good <laughs> and so we in the first episode we talked about these kind of rows about the nature of christ and the Aryan heresy that the vandals hold to um, is a product of the fourth century, the age of Constantine. 
So in that sense, the Vandals are, you know, they're throwbacks. They're theological throwbacks. Crikey. They're um, dinosaurs. Um, they are, di- yeah. So they've clearly, you know, they've got to be cleared up. Um, yeah. The, the Vandals are doubly a threat because they're occupying the breadbasket that had previously fed Rome. They're occupying the great Roman city of Carthage. Um, but also they hold to this kind of antiquated heresy and uh, it's unacceptable. So Justinian raises an immense fleet, a great armada. It sails out from the, the harbour of Constantinople to much cheering. And it's a triumphant success. And it's under the command of Belisarius, who people who listened to the um, the previous episode may remember is very much in Justinian's good books because he's, yeah. he's slaughtered. <laughs> thousands of people in the hippodrome the equivalent of loads of unarmed football hooligans yes (laughs) exactly yes um but so so actually when you look at the timeline i mean the fleet leaves in the midsummer 533 so that's just over a year we're a year and a bit since the the end of the rioting um but actually they pretty much wiped the floor with the vandals within less than a year Uh, so that the 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 king of the vandals is a man called gelimer do you know what happened to Gelimer, Tom? I was he gets at, taken back, doesn't he? And led he in triumph. So, so he was beaten at a battle. Gelimer went and hid. And uh, Belisarius said, you know, will you surrender? And he said, yes. And do you know what he asked for in return? I'm so delighted I found these details. I thought it was so no, remind me. He said, I require just two things to get me to surrender. They were a sponge and a liar. The sponge was to wipe his eye because he'd su- he suffered an eye infection while mm. in hiding. And the liar was, uh, Gelimer had written a song. He'd written a dirge because he felt very downbeat after losing, <laughs> after losing his kingdom. And he said, I'd like a liar so that I could I could try it out. <laughs> so Belisarius gave him that. So he gave him the sponge and the liar. He was taken to Constantinople in, and he was led in a triumph. So yes. that's very Roman, Tom. Unbelievably Roman. Yeah. So this great triumph that kind of culminates in the uh, in the Hippodrome. And he retired. Gelimer retired. Uh, he was allowed to retire to Galatia. Galatia is now in Turkey, I think, is it? Yeah, so it's kind of middle of Turkey, Cappadocia. Almost. So is, is, he, is, he, is he in danger of getting a letter from St. Paul? Did St. Paul write to the, <laughs> yes. did he write to the Galatians? Yes. yes, he did. Um, so am I right in thinking, therefore, the Vandal rule in Africa must have been relatively kind of shallow yeah pretty much they were they were disliked by by the people that they ruled is that because they're basically a bunch of germans kind of sweating in oh, they're the a bunch of vandals Af- aren't they african <laughs> african sun the um the dark reputation that they have is reflected in the fact that we still use the, the word vandal to mean what it means so um and the story is is that they they took the um the looted treasures from jerusalem that titus had brought in uh in the first century paraded it through in, in his triumph through the streets of Rome, uh, that the Vandals then took it to Carthage and um, Belisarius then takes them to Constantinople is one of the story. Uh, we're not absolutely sure about that, but it's, you know, if that's true, it's kind of a nice sense in the way. It's which, a very good story. You know, <laughs> these are the trophies of victory. And Justinian could legitimately say, well, you know, Rome is back. We're yeah. celebrating triumphs. Um, and of course, the next target is the big one, which is Italy and Rome. But that's a different matter, isn't it? So Italy is, um, has been run by the Goths, the Ostrogoths. Theodoric, who had been the great Gothic leader, um, had sort of been subordinate to Constantinople. Am I right? He'd sort of yeah, so acknowledged the kind of suzerainty of, of the emperor in Constantinople. Yeah, so there's a kind of spacious legalism whereby the emperor could pretend that he still ruled Italy and the Ostrogoths could feel that they had a, you know, that they'd been legitimized that they weren't just kind of barbarians. Yeah. And Italy, Italy under Theodoric is a, a pretty stable, prosperous place. So they are, you know, the Senate is still sitting in Rome. Chariots are still being raced in Circus Maximus. Um, water is flowing happily along the aqueducts. So, you know, there are lots of people, I think we, we, we mentioned this in, in the episode we did on when the Roman Empire falls, that there, I think there are lots of people in Italy who don't particularly feel that the Roman Empire has fallen. Yeah. Um, and to that extent, the arrival of a large flotilla from Constantinople isn't necessarily greeted with kind of rapturous enthusiasm because yeah. it means that Italy will now become a theatre of war. Well, I was going to ask about this because we could, I mean, we could spend, I mean, do a sort of Dan Carlin hardcore history style um, narrative of the Italian wars. I actually, I mean, I studied these when I was a student. And when I used to read Procopius's account of the um, the wars in Italy, I found it absolutely impossible it is to, keep, bewildering. to keep awake 
let alone to find to yeah. work out what was going on. But basically, it's cut a really, really long story, very, very simplistically short. The campaign just lasts forever. And uh, I mean, within a year of landing, so Belisarius is in charge yet again. He captures Naples, but within a year of landing, he's basically holed up in in Rome, isn't he? He's got into Rome, but the- yeah. So Belisarius famously is is the first person to capture Rome from the south before the Allies in the Second World War. So your brother has written a book about the war in Italy in the Second World War, and I was struck because everyone always says, you know, the the war in Italy is sort of forgotten, the forgotten part of the Second World War, because it was so vicious and so difficult for the Allies fighting their way up the peninsula against the Germans. And there's a bit of an element of that about this, isn't there? The, 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 a bit, yeah. They've, they've had a sort of a, a soft start in North Africa, and now they land in Italy, and it's just so much more difficult. And yeah, Belisarius does capture Rome, but then he ends up... He loses it, gets it back, yeah. and... Yeah. And this is essentially what finishes Rome off as a great capital, because um, during the course of uh, of all these kind of sieges and 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 so on, the aqueducts get cut, uh, and without the aqueducts, it becomes impossible to sustain the size of population that Rome had had. And at one point during these wars, Rome effectively becomes depopulated. Yeah. So the city that at the heyday of the empire had had a million, you know, it's it's this absolute wilderness. It's this emptied wilderness. Um, I mean, that's true of much of Italy, isn't it? That the farmlands are destroyed by these armies crisscrossing yeah. back and forth. You get accounts of people starving. I mean, it must have been a kind of a apocalyptic landscape. Completely. And, you know, thanks first to Belisarius and then to Narses, who by this point is about 310. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he takes over the command. They effectively get control of Italy, but it's, you know, it's a charnel house. And yeah. if you want to say, well, when does the Roman Empire end in Italy? I'd say it's it's with this. I mean, I know it's impossible to say, but is it your sense that most people in Italy would have much preferred the, in inverted commas, Roman army never to have pitched up and to just lived quite happily under Gothic rule? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, if you're a, if you're a senator in Rome, yeah, and you end up a penniless refugee, it's no consolation that you na- you are now ruled by an emperor from a Caesar in Constantinople. Yeah, of course. And 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 the worst thing is. That you know, from, from the point of view of the penniless senator, is that it's all for nothing because very soon after the conquests have seemingly been completed and the Goths defeated, a whole new people in the form of the Lombards turn up yeah. and grab you know huge chunks of Italy. So that um, Constantinople ends up ruling Rome still, so it still has Rome and it has Ravenna because Ravenna is a port that is mm-hmm. is open to shipping coming up the, up the Adriatic. And Ravenna had been a previous imperial capital as well, hadn't it? It had, yes. And so there are lots of palaces there. There are lots of churches there. It had been pretty much the capital for, for Ostrogothic rule. Um, and it will become the place where the most famous visual representations of Justinian Well, Theodora. this is what I was about to say, Tom, that the wars, from a tourist's perspective, <laughs> um, from a modern tourist's perspective, yeah. the wars were tremendously worthwhile because yeah. these extraordinary visual depictions of Justinian and Theodora survive uh, in the church of, I think it's San Vitale, isn't it, in Ravenna. I mean, they are the most incredible Byzantine mosaics. Um, But, you know, that brings us slightly back to the personalities of Justinian and Theodora, which I guess sometimes get lost in this story, because we have images of them that we don't have, really, of most other post-6th century um emperors and, and certainly empresses i guess do you think that's one reason why the, another reason why theodora is i mean nobody really remembers any barely any maybe zoe later on irene perhaps. irene yeah, yeah. Uh, but apart from that nobody remembers other empresses do you think that the existence of the mosaics is one reason why yes i'm sure because it, you know the literal iconography of it yeah um it's so powerful and they're, they're such kind of stunning mosaics they're such kind they're, of you know they're on the cover of every book about they not are. just not just Justinian Theodora, but about pretty much Byzantium. Well, I think because they're completely worth it and a tremendous idea because they gave us the mosaics <laughs> that we can advertise yeah. this podcast with. However, just after they've embarked, really, I mean, within a year or, so, or, or a couple of years of embarking on this uh, reconquest of Italy, there's a there's trouble in the east. So we we've, we've talked in previous episodes about. Persia being the big, you know, the big superpower threat to Constantinople and Khosrow as sort of, is he Khrushchev to Justinian's Kennedy or is he Kennedy to uh, Justinian's Khrushchev? I don't know um, who quite fits that uh, 
analogy. I mean, Justinian is a peasant stock, isn't he? So maybe he's Khrushchev and Khosrow is a very regal stock. So maybe he's Kennedy. Anyway, the Persians reappear, come across the frontier and um, they basically capture Antioch, which is the third city. So it's in Syria. It's the great capital of Syria, very ancient city, very rich city. So it's a disaster. So Procopius says, I become dizzy as I write of such a great calamity. And that must have been how many people in Constantinople felt when they contemplated the fact. I mean, it's a problem for them that Antioch is re- is not that far from the border, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And, and as you say, there's no, nat- as you said in previous episodes, there are no real natural frontiers between Rome and Persia so that the Persians can just, you know, if it's, if they spot a weakness, they can just pile across. But this is a colossal um, setback for Justinian. Surely, a, a bigger setback than the capture of some of Italy is a triumph. Do you think? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's a humiliation and it's a stunning blow to the economy of the empire. Yeah, you know, to have your third city, to have all the, you know, the skilled people, all the tra- all the, the craftsmen, and everybody, they all get taken off to Iraq and and Persia. The city is stripped bare. Uh, it's it, yeah, it's complete humiliation um, and a disaster. And as if one disaster like that wasn't enough, yeah, okay. we are a year away <laughs> yeah. from, from the arrival in. I think it's first detected in Egypt in so Pelusia. So we talked about this with Kyle uh, last week. Uh, so it comes to the plague arrives, hits Pelusium, hits Alexandria, winnows out from Alexandria to uh, to Constantinople, and then to Italy, and then onwards, uh, westwards, and eastwards. So it hits um, it hits Persia as well. Uh, absolute disaster. I mean. There is much debate about the the scale of it, but I think I think we're with Peter Saris on this, aren't we? That yeah, that it's um, you know, this is a, a disaster on the scale of the Black Death, pretty much. So, so Procopius says. I mean, obviously, we did talk about this in our podcast with Carl Harper, but just to kind of recapitulate um, for for those people who missed it, I mean, Procopius says ten thousand people a day died in Constantinople, and because. Procopius clearly tends to exaggerate, and because he also did think Justinian's head floated off its body and uh, could reappear. So people sort of say, oh, 10,000, it couldn't have been 10,000. He probably means it was 500. Um, but I think a lot of historians now would say, I mean, you mentioned Peter Saris, um, would, who's written articles about this. Uh, a lot of historians now would say Procopius is probably right. It probably does kill yeah. thousands of people a day. It probably kills tens of millions of people well, across the Mediterranean. Justinian himself gets it and is one of the few that survives. So many people are, are dying in, in the streets of Constantinople that they start chucking them in the harbour and then it just blocks up the harbour because they're just floating with corpses. So Justinian orders that they should dig uh, pits on the other side of the Golden Horn, so across from the, the kind of promontory on which Constantinople is built. And they, they dig these pits and they chuck the bodies in. And there are these hideous descriptions of how the corpses kind of melt and come to constitute a kind of corpse custard i suppose a kind of a thick, corpse custard Tom. a thick gravy um right. so that that if you drop you know, if somebody falls into it they plop, they get kind of sucked down into the into the mulch of it oh my you, word. and drown I, I mean it's so hideous i mean I, I, and, and and so you, if you're course, gonna drown don't drown in human gravy no i, I mean it's just really horrible and when um and when you when you get chroniclers kind of saying as one does that the whole of humanity came close to annihilation of course that's an exaggeration so people say that kind of language it's bread of the bible you know it's it's the well it's equivalent for kind of you know a daily mail headline why oh why terrible Tom. for house prices all this kind of thing there's absolutely um, let me just be absolutely clear in case anybody's <laughs> listening in uh rothermere towers there's absolutely nothing wrong with daily mail headlines they're very measured and sober okay. and i want to Go on absolutely on record as, so, as distancing myself from that shame, shameful remark. So if the Daily Mail was around, it would say, it would say, this is going to be terrible for house prices. But I, but I think it, it, it is, you know, the, the, the apocalyptic quality of it is, is really very, very profound. And I think that it essentially, it's an absolute disaster for Justinian and his plans because what it does is that it demolishes his tax base. Yes. And, it means that the funds to pay his armies, to maintain the roads, uh, to, to maintain the fortifications that line the frontiers along, the, say, the Danube or along Syria are gone. And that 
that has catastrophic implications for the stability of the empire because it means that um, you know nomads are likelier to to escape the impact of the plague. It, yeah. It's it's urban centres that are that are being hit by it, and that is in the very long run. You know that's very bad news because it means that the Arabs will be able to move in. But in the short term, it means that bands of horsemen are able to cross the Danube. You know, rather as the Lombards do, going into Italy, and they discover that there's no one to stop them. Just on um, on on Justinian and the plague, Tom. Justinian is ill for weeks, and he almost dies. Uh, he is now. He's not a young man. He became emperor when he was in his forties. Uh, so now he is what he's in his. Um, he must be nearly 60. Yeah, he's, he's getting on. Um, so he's lucky to, to pull through. And there's obviously must have been talk when he's lying in, you know, who's going to be next? Who's going to succeed him? And clearly he has one general who's a sort of dashing, swashbuckling general, very good at fighting hooligans and stadiums, but also very good at beating vandals uh, and giving them sponges. And that is Belisarius. And, and it's about this point, isn't it, that you start to really notice that his favorite general, you know, they're no longer on such great terms. And that basically probably Justinian is worried that Belisarius wants to replace him, that he's a focus for opposition, you know, that let's get rid of the old man and get the young guy in. And do you think this, that Justinian's near death experience is one of the things that explains their falling out that Robert Graves writes about in his novel? I doubt it. You don't think so? No, I think I think it's I think it's I think Justinian was a naturally suspicious person. You're so down on Justinian, Tom. Very bad, very bad. Well, I mean, he he, he was a disaster. I, I mean, he was a disaster, and I think that that actually, I, I think we should take a break at this point, and when we come back, we should end this account of his reign and that of Theodora by looking at the death of Theodora, looking yeah. at the last years of Justinian's r- rule. And um, then looking at Procopius and saying, "Well, you know, where where is where is this secret history coming from? What's yeah. the okay? Very good. Uh, we will see you um, after the break. Bye bye." I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, <laughs> or people will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. This man was both an evildoer and easily led into evil, the sort of person whom they call a moral pervert, never of his own accord speaking the truth to those with whom he conversed, but having a deceitful and crafty intent behind every word. He was insincere, crafty, hypocritical, dissembling his anger, double-dealing, clever, a perfect artist in acting out an opinion which he pretended to hold, and even then able to produce tears, not from joy or sorrow, but contriving them for the occasion, according to the needs of the moment always playing false. 
So that's one of the members of our Rest is History Club talking about <laughs> my co-presenter, Tom Holland. And if you too want to what join bads. the Rest is History Club, uh, join up at restishistorypod.com. So no other podcast, I think, in the world, Tom, uses the words of the historian Procopius to recruit supporters for their own podcast club so i think that's something that distinguishes us from other history podcasts yes and continuing that procopian tradition of um one minute being all smiles and nice and kind yes. and generous and then suddenly stabbing me in the back well you know what procopius very said? very procopian baby he was a fickle friend a truceless enemy an ardent devotee of assassination and a robbery there was no robbery in the rest is history club let's be absolutely <laughs> clear about that right tom the lessons of history so we've done the plague we have done uh the the, the incredibly grueling campaign in Italy, which has been grinding all this time, which is we've done the fact that um, Justinian has suffered this terrible, devastating humiliation of the sack of Antioch by the Persians. And Theodora in all this, I mean, she's sort of like a lot of women in history. Um, she's invisible to the chroniclers if they're not slagging her off, isn't she? But we, we kind of know one thing about her, which is that she, I mean, Procopius basically does says he presents it in a very bad light. She clearly tried to rehabilitate lots of prostitutes, so she housed them in a convent. Procopius basically says, "Yes, yeah, called repentance." Yes, yeah, she <laughs> incarcerated these ladies of the night against their will. This dreadful harridan, but but clearly, there's a kind of Gladstonian way of looking at that. Yeah, completely, completely, and 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 she. She she kind of makes Justinian into a rather improbable feminist. So he, he introduces a lot of legislation <laughs> to kind of improve women's lives. Yeah. Clearly, clearly influenced by Theodora. Divorce reform, mothers getting custody, um, the end of the death penalty for women yeah. who've been accused of being unfaithful, um, the death penalty for rape um, he yeah. brings in. So lots of things that clearly, you know, you have this image of this sort of Bill and Hillary Clinton kind of relationship <laughs> yes. where, yeah. and she also he she also has the latitude to support bishops and and missionaries and things with her own kind of monophysite beliefs, doesn't she? So she clearly is a. And although the orthodox tradition comes to be that that actually she was orthodox all along, and that she oh. was a, a kind of um, Trojan horse. So is that how uh, she was able to become a saint? Basically, it is. Yes. Yeah. But um, do you think, Tom, that? Uh, I mean, do you think she was, as it were, a saintly figure? I mean, yes, should we I remember her as a... I always think that about uh, people who are described as, as being saintly by hagiographers. Yeah. Um, and the temptation is always to say, oh, it was all just a sham. It was all just a fraud. I, I have no doubt that um, Theodora's, you know, her process of being born again, if you want to put it like that, in Alexandria as a young woman, when she turns her back on her previous career, I'm sure that's absolutely authentic uh, and you know the obvious reason for thinking that is that justinian whatever else you may say about him is you know he's not a hypocrite he really does believe what he says he believes yeah and his christian faith is crucially crucially important to him and so it's inconceivable that he would marry and love a woman who was a, a dissembler Right, because there's nothing in it for him in marrying her. Nothing. I mean, I mean, he actually has to. I mean, as we discussed in a previous podcast, his uncle has to change the law to allow him to yeah. to marry beneath his station. So, so they are a great Christian couple. I mean, no question about that. What one might say, Tom, is um, if she does have this shady past, which we'll come to in a second, the allegations against her. If she does have this very shady past, then it's all the more impressive that she devotes her energies to rehabilitating girls who've been sex slaves, girls who've been prostitutes. Yeah. Because of course that draws attention to, I mean, she's not afraid to draw attention to her, her past, is she? Because she's not trying to distance herself. So Procopius says, and there's, I think no reason to doubt it because um, there is a monophysite bishop who refers to Theodora without any kind of, you know, just absolutely naturally that Theodora who was in the brothel, who was in a brothel, yeah. So it's not something that the Monophysites who see her as her great champion are trying to hide. They acknowledge it. Um, and they see it as redounding to her credit. So we mentioned Mary Magdalene, that this is an example. But if we, if you, and it's so difficult because to, to get into the minds of people from, from such a, a distant culture, such a distant time. But that opening passage that we read in the very first, you know, the opening of part one, the geese, the geese, that passage has always been a subject of kind of, you know, titillation and, and salaciousness. But what her career there, she is a child. 
So she's yeah. a child. She's being introduced, you know, she's performing these acts as a child and she's starting to be prostituted as, as you know, by our standards, underage. Well, there's a description so far. I mean, ba- I mean, Procopius is completely upfront about that. He says uh, she was too immature to sleep with a man or to have intercourse like a woman, but she acted as might a male prostitute to satisfy those dregs of humanity, slaves though they were, who followed their master to the theatre and there took the opportunity to indulge in such bestial practices. He's telling that story yeah. to say how degenerate she is. Of course, we read that story and we say, oh my God, she is a child sex yeah. slave. And so Procopius, with that that kind of um, language, is doing what Roman moralists have always done, which is to blame the victims of prostitution and slavery uh, for the crimes that are forced on them, the rapes that are forced on them, and to say, well, they love it, they enjoy it, they're, they're absolutely rapacious, they, you know, they're insatiable. Yeah. That's an absolute, you know, they, so in that sense, Procopius, as in so many other things, is an absolute traditionalist. And I think that it is not, um, it's not anachronistic to adopt a, a perspective that, sa- that says, well, you know, that is a crime, because our perspective is the Christian perspective, essentially, that every individual should have bodily integrity. Yeah. And so I think there is a sense in which Theodora is, you know, her, her, her Christianity is the, the way that she tries to reform prostitutes, that she tries to bring in laws that will better patrol um, the right of women not to be raped is expressed, you know, it's, 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 it's a part of this process that Justinian is also very much the embodiment of where traditions that have been inherited from Rome are starting to be swept away by an increasingly Christian worldview. Yeah. And in the, in the sense that she's not, she's not trying to distract attention from her sin. She knows she's been a sinner as it were, but she's also been a victim and she's not afraid there, there is, as, as you've often said about Christianity, the great innovation of Christianity is that there is, as it were, dignity and holiness in, in suffering, in being a victim, which the Romans had never believed, had they? Yeah. And all of this brings us to the question of, I mean, she dies, poor old Theodora, she dies of probably, I mean, I don't know where people get this from, where they guess how people died, but everything you ever read says she probably died of cancer in 548. So she died at the age of, in her late 40s, probably and- about. There, there was a church in which Constantine and other emperors had been buried, and Justinian, in his grief, builds an, a new kind of mausoleum in yeah. which she's laid. And whenever he rode past it, he would stop and light candles before her her grave. So, was her, his bereavement was clearly very real. Um, Theodora was clearly, you know, to the end of their days, they loved each other. I think, I don't, again, I don't think it's being sentimental or anachronistic to say that. Um, and she was clearly, you know, the the great partner that he'd missed terribly in the kind of rather grim final years of his life. But the sort of tragedy for her, Tom, is that everybody remembers, I mean, those people who do remember her, remember her for the geese and they remember the, and that's Procopius. Now he was to to explain to who he was, he was basically Belisarius's secretary. Is that right? Yeah, pretty Um, much. So he's from Palestine. Um, He sees, you know, a lot of what he's describing and as well as the, um, the secret history, he also writes, um, a book about the the the, the monuments that Justinian With raises. A brilliant ri- title on buildings. On buildings, <laughs> and he and he writes a history of the war. So he writes a history of the um, the the North African War, the Vandal War, and the, uh, the the conquest of Italy, in which he is very very respectful of Justinian. Yeah. There's none of the um, stuff about moral perversion and you know or, or demons' heads and shapeless masses of flesh in in that. Yeah. And so in these the, these histories of the Italian wars, you know, he, he, he gives Justinian a very good spin. So he's, he says of Justinian that he took over the state when it was much harassed by disorder. And his achievement was that not only did he make it greater in extent, but also much more illustrious. So in the history of the wars, Procopius is the spokesman for Justinianic propaganda. Yeah. And so the question has always been, what on earth is he doing? <laughs> doing you know one of the great kind of literary assassinations of all time so that as you said whenever people think of theodora they don't think of the saint they think of the they think of the geese yeah and the gymnastics but isn't this simply i mean very easily explained that justinian and theodora have fallen out with belisarius and his wife antonina 
Um, there's all kinds of weird stuff about Theodora and Antonina kind of plotting against each other and gossiping and all this sort of, um, sort of very Rebecca Vardy and Colleen Rooney. And, um, and the Procopius is writing because he's, you know, he's Belisarius, his partisan. But he's not, but he's equally rude about Belisarius. It's just bitter, isn't he? It's just generally bitter. I mean, he's, he's slagging them off as well. I think, yeah. so I think, I think what is going on is that Procopius is, is a conservative. Hmm. And essentially, you know, that is what Romans were. You know, I mean, it's insane to talk about Roman conservatives because everyone was conservative. Everyone had this kind of deep seated assumption that the old ways were the best. Um, Justinian again is, is a Christian to the extent that he is dreaming of a new and better world. It's a new and better world in which he is the autocrat, but he is a radical. He is a revolutionary to that extent. He wants to reshape the world, even if he's saying, well, by, by reshaping the world and improving it, I'm also, you know, restoring and repairing what, what, what's gone wrong. Yeah. And Procopius in the secret history, the thing he goes on and on and on about is that Justinian is constantly, he, you know, he's deliberately setting out to mess everything up. This is what's, this is what's giving him his great source of pleasure. He's going around ruining everything, changing everything, messing everything up. Yeah. And I think for Procopius, genuinely, he thinks that Justinian is a, is a demonic figure because he can't really understand ultimately, firstly, how he's got power. And secondly, why he's using this power to such disastrous, um, ends as justinian sees it and one of the i think one of the, the the ways in which you can see how this preys on just on on procopius's mind is that although we said that the history of uh, of the wars is is much more overtly um positive there's a there's a passage where the goths send ambassadors to Khosro, the king of persia to try and persuade him to um to, to launch an invasion um of the roman empire while the romans are busy invading italy and the, the, the Gothic ambassador says of Justinian that he is a man who by nature strives for change and loves was to not belong to him at all, who is not able to keep things as they are, who has therefore tried to seize the whole earth and has been captured by the desire to take for himself each and every rule. And you compared uh, Justinian to Khrushchev. I mean, that yeah. is, you know, the, the Goths there are kind of casting Justinian as an agent of universal change and revolution. Yeah. And upheaval. And I think to, you know, that Procopius is, is putting in the Gothic ambassador's mouth what he feels about Justinian. Yeah. And that I think very he, plausible. I think he genuinely does see him as a demonic. Figure. Even though, of course, ironic, the irony is that Justinian thinks he is, you know, reviving the glory of Rome. So what to some people seems a radical project. And you could argue, I mean, we'll come to this in a second. You could argue is a moment of tremendous disruption from which the Roman world never recovers. Justinian conceives of that as a restorative project. That's why some yes. historians talk about this as a reconquista, as a kind of, yeah. even though actually it's a, it's a good analogy because, of course, the reconquista is not really a reconquest because those territories never belonged to Spain. So Justinian's so-called reconquista probably doesn't seem like a reconquest to people in Italy who'd probably much rather be off um, living under the Goths without armies trudging over their farmland. Justinian is doing it for what he sees as the very noblest of motives. He's doing yeah. it as a Roman and he's doing it as Christian. And he sees you know, these are the duties that have been laid on him by God. Where Procopius is, I think, scabrously unfair to Justinian is in saying that um, Justinian is doing it just for the fun of it. Yeah. So uh, Procopius says of, of, of Justinian that, that he, he wasn't satisfied just with ruining the Roman Empire. So in <laughs> other words, the territories that he already owned and that this is why he insisted on invading North Africa, why he insists on invading Italy. It's, it's for the sole purpose of ensuring that he can destroy the inhabitants of those lands as well as the inhabitants of the Roman Empire. It's just, uh, just a ludicrous thing to say. But I, th but I think, I think probably Procopius genuinely believes that the, the forces of evil have been unleashed on the earth because, yeah. you know, this, I, and, and again, I think that the scale of the plague and the war. I was just going to ask you about is that. So yeah. monstrous that I think, you know, this is an age where you're, you're living in apocalyptic yeah. times. I mean, Justinian, so Theodora died in 548. Justinian, although he's, he's a fair bit older than her, he lives for another 17 years, which I think, you know, when historians talk about it, he, he feels like a, an aging, exhausted, everything's a bit grayer. I mean, obviously, it's not surprising it feels like a, a sort of grayer time because it's in the aftermath of this horrendous plague 
um, constant sort of fighting. It's very clear, isn't it, Tom, that he's, you know, their tax base has shrunk, their manpower has shrunk, they're struggling to fight off incursions on the frontiers. So at one point, there's a group called the Kutrigers who make it all the way down into Greece, sort of charging around Greece, you know, sort of sacking and, and pillaging. And you've also got the first rumors of a group of people called the Avars, who are going to be a big issue um, for Constantinople in the long run. So it's quite a sort of grim, grey story, it is. isn't it? The- yeah, it really is. And I think that, that it is a genuinely tragic story. If by tragedy you mean, you know, someone is destroyed by his own qualities and virtues. Well, let's get to it. So Justinian dies in, Nov- in November uh, 565. He'd ruled for almost 40 years. He's succeeded by his nephew, Justin, who becomes Justin II. And then you have a couple more emperors before you really get to the kind of as it were, the cataclysm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so to sort of jump ahead and anticipate, to, to, to paint the picture for people who are not massively familiar with this, by at the end of the 6th century, beginning of the 7th century, the, the Roman-Persian conflict becomes this kind of all-out superpower death match where the Persians appear to have the Romans completely on the ropes and a, a new emperor called Heraclius sort of summons up every last sinew of Roman energy and fights them off. And they're both absolutely exhausted. And at this, at this point that the Arabs appear and it just it absolutely is. wipe the floor and, with her. And, and people who want to know what happens then, we have done an episode on Muhammad, right. um, which I commend to you. Um, so Tom, if, if you want to follow this story up, that's the next stage in, in, in this story. So Tom, there are two ways of looking at Justinian and Theodora and their, their time in that light, I would say one would be to say, this is the last, Hurrah for a particular kind of Rome before mm-hmm. the deluge. And the de- and to say, you know what, there's quite a big interval between Justinian's death and the coming of Islam. It's ridiculously unfair to blame him for something that happens so long afterwards. He did his best to restore the Roman state. Um, it's not massively unstable. I mean, it's, no, it's fiscally fragile, but it's not massively unstable when he dies. Actually, he is a pretty great emperor. He reasserts the dignity of the office. He reasserts the authority of the capital, all of those things. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation would be to say he massively overextends the empire. He wastes a lot of money on campaigns in North Africa and Italy that don't really achieve anything. It takes 20 years to subdue Italy. Um you know, he because of the overextension, in the long run, he lands his successes with commitments that are unsustainable and it's basically his fault that it all goes wrong a generation later i'm guessing that you're in the first camp am I? no i'm not oh you're not I, I think his campaigns in italy are disastrous as i said for uh, anything that would rank as a kind of the continuity of roman civilization in italy yeah i think it's that it, they are so destructive but i think the real villain isn't justinian i think it's yasina pestis which is why i wanted to do this in the wake of the the discussion that we had with Carl. So Harper. by that you mean the plague? I, th- I mean the plague. So I th- the I think that without the plague, I think it is entirely possible to see the situation in Italy stabilizing, Roman military power in Italy becoming sufficient that the Lombards never invade, uh, the Danube ho- frontier holds. Uh, Antioch is you know has been demolished by Khosrow, but it could, you know this has happened before. Antioch is always being demolished either by Persians or by earthquakes. Um, so that frontier could be stabilized and you would never have had, um, you know, because the whole reason, the whole thing why the plague is so devastating relative to nomads is that it's urban centers that get destroyed and people out in the desert, you know, are able to maintain their forces. Uh, it's that that ultimately in the long run kind of dooms the Roman control of, of, um, of Syria, of Palestine, of Egypt. Yeah. So I, th- I think without the plague, well, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe the Roman Empire would still be a going concern. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, who knows? But um, I, I think the reputation of Justinian would be very different. And I think that he would have, he could have spent his last decades rather than frantically struggling to repair the damage inflicted by the plague in, you know, restoring prosperity to Italy, uh, restabilizing the frontier along yeah. with Mesopotamia. 
um, I think the story would have been very different. And I think the Balkan frontier wouldn't have collapsed as it does. Yes. You wouldn't have had barbarians kind of penetrating all the way to Greece, all the way to the walls of Constantinople. Um, I think the story would have been very different. And with Italy stabilized, of course, the Romans would then be in a position to start thinking about recapturing maybe southern Gaul, the provincia, you know, very kind of Romanized area, mm-hmm. uh, and and expanding the toeholds that they do get in, in, uh, in southern Spain. So I think the story could have been very different. I think you know, it's it's right to call the plague that hits the Mediterranean in the sixth century the Justinianic plague because um, he is the paradigmatic ruler of the age. But it's also kind of, you know, it's a cruel irony because it is it is the Justinianic plague that destroys Justinian's yeah. legacy. Although, as it's as it stands, Tom, he leaves a, a not massive, a not unimpressive legacy. I mean, he codifies the laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't see Hagia Sophia, the architecture he, of. He of leaves the most famous. Some of the, not. Yeah. I mean, his reign leaves these tremendous buildings, the mosaics, the art. He doesn't see color. You know, there's not massive civil wars and rebellions during his his reign. I mean, the, the well, riot, the, the Nica riot, right? But, the riot in the Hippodrome yeah. is very famous, but by the standards of of Roman rebellions. You know, it's all done and dusted in what a week, um, mm. and limited to the capital. So you, I mean, you could say, you know, of the Roman emperors in this period, he is by far the most visionary, the most visionary, the most adept at using the machinery of government. Um, the one who has, you know, the one is, visionary is the right word. The one who has the clearest vision for a renovated and reformed, modernized um, empire, and it doesn't work through factors that he can't control. I, I think, though, the tragedy is, is that that vision runs into Reality. the greatest natural calamity to hit the Mediterranean. Folk, yeah. you know? And that's why I think that I think it was right to do these series of episodes because they have been prefaced by that episode we did, did with Carl Harper on the way that plague impacted the Roman world. We, we've talked ever since we started this whole podcast, The Rest is History, about um, the Byzantine Empire and Byzantium. Do you think this is the moment at which it no longer makes sense for us as historians looking back to talk about Rome? So in other words, is is the word Roman still useful to describe the people who call themselves Romans in the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th centuries? Or do you think Justinian's reign or, and, and the period that then immediately follows it marks such a break that they're no longer usefully Romans? I, th- I think a more useful point is the is the Arab the coming of Islam invasions and yeah. conquests because I think what had been the Roman Empire basically gets reduced to a rump, you know the, that great legacy of cities that the emperors in Constantinople had inherited from the Greek and the Roman classical worlds they get destroyed essentially. Yeah. Uh, so all that really gets left is Constantinople, and the people of Constantinople did call themselves Byzantine. Um, so they called themselves Roman, they were Romeoi, but they did also call themselves Byzantines. The extent that what had been the Roman Empire, you know, at one point basically is Constantinople with a few kind of scattered territories that are constantly being invaded by Arabs and barbarians from the north. Um, I think the Byzantine conveys the sense of of a really radical break. I don't think I think that just Justinian's rule is very decisive as a kind of fracture point, but it's a it's a kind of evolution of norms in Rome that someone like Procopius can see as a kind of shocking assault. But Procopius is kind of talking about it as a political process. Yeah. What happens with the Arab invasions is, you know, almost the entire collapse of of the empire. And essentially the effort of ensuring that Constantinople doesn't fall, that something in Anatolia, in Greece, in the Balkans, and to a degree in Italy is preserved is so shattering and exhausting that by the time um, the Byzantine Empire starts to get back on a, a moderately stable footing, everything has changed. And you have people in Constantinople who look at what has remained of the, the Roman era, you know, the statues, the friezes, even the statue, great statue of Justinian that he's put up to himself. And they can't remember what, you know, who or what these things are. Yeah. They think that they're kind of illustrations of necromancers. or And there are no histories. That's the other thing. So Procopius is kind of the last of that living tradition that reaches all the way back to Thucydides and Herodotus. Mm. But it's the measure of the, you know, we talk, again, we talked about this with Karl Harper. I think it's a measure of the trauma that, that they suffer, that people aren't around to, to write histories. So there really is a break, I think. Well, and I think we should do future episodes on 
the Arab conquests and uh, Byzantium's resilience, and of course iconoclasm, which is a, a particularly mysterious and intriguing moment in Byzantine history. Quite and topical. A, and a very topical. And on current form, Tom, we'll probably get around to doing those in about 2027. Yes. So um, <laughs> We'll see you in so, 2027. But there's one last question before we end, which I think is the question that will have been on a lot of listeners' minds since we started the first of these Justinian and Theodora podcasts, um, what seems like an eternity ago. And that is this, Tom, do you think Theodora was a justified um, victor of Love Island. I really do. I really do. And I think that, um, uh, so Love Island in Britain finished last week. Um, I can imagine. Love Island finished about a month ago. Um, So Theodora is a kind of Love Island contestant who then ends up the most powerful woman in Britain. Yeah. That gives you some measure, I think, of of her quality. The most powerful woman in Britain. Yes, yeah, so, oh, I see you're saying yeah, you're, that's the analogy. Yeah, imagine, imagine that. Uh, and you, I think, have some sense of the fact that clearly she was, um, she combined uh, charisma, sex appeal, intelligence, ruthlessness, um, and ultimately holiness in a package that I think is entirely inimitable. Well, I'll end it with this thought, Tom, that if, if uh, Theodora had been married to Stanley Baldwin, her <laughs> co-champion on Love Island, rather than Justinian, uh, Stanley Baldwin's mantra, of course, was safety first. And it may well be that the Roman Empire would still be going today had Stanley Baldwin been in charge in the 6th century. And that is a thought you probably won't have heard on any rival history podcast. But I imagine we'll live with our listeners till the end of their days. If only, if only it had been (laughs) Stanley and Theodora. Yeah, if only Stanley Baldwin had been Roman Emperor in 527, history would be very different. And on that bombshell... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, thank you, Tom. That was an absolutely splendid. I really enjoyed that. Um, I, I don't know if any, our listeners enjoyed it, but I certainly enjoyed it. Um, and uh, we will see you next time for all kinds of treats. What have we got coming, Tom? We've got Lady Jane Grey. We've got um, uh, we've got the real outbreak of the first of the Second World War, haven't we? We've got holidays. Yeah, holidays. Um, lots Roman of holidays, uh, Victorian holidays. Um, since it is the holiday season. Um, and looking further forward, we've got Walt Disney and we've got um, French films and we've got the North. Yes, history of France told through 10 French films. So yeah. So lots to come. All sorts of delights. Uh, and we will see you then. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.